Well, it's a joy to be here this morning. I'm glad that Pastor Bob uh, uh, invited me to come speak, and then, you know, he ran off to Guatemala, you know. Um, but he promised he'll listen to the messages. We had a wonderful phone call. I appreciate his heart for the Jewish people, and I hope it's been contagious uh, at the church. And so this morning, I'd like you to open your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. We'll be looking at Romans 9, 10, and 11, a few passages out of each of those chapters, and we'll be addressing uh, an interesting uh, issue, at least it's, it's pretty interesting for me, and that is a lot of us have Jewish friends, don't we? How many of you have Jewish friends? Okay, well, if you don't, I'll be your friend, so most of us have Jewish friends, and most of us have tried to share the gospel with our Jewish friends over the years and some have listened, most have not, unless your experience is different than every other Christian in the world. And some of you have been sharing the gospel with Jewish people for a long time. But it's not just Jewish people. Some of you have been sharing the gospel with family and loved ones for years and years and years. And yet sometimes there's no response. So how many of you have been sharing the gospel with family members, just family members who have not yet come to faith, let's say for more than 20 years. Okay, some of you are not that old, okay. How about 15 years, getting more? 10 years, okay, getting more. How many of you, all your family are believers? Just raise your hands. I'm jealous. <laughs> In Romans 9, 10, and 11, Rabbi Saul, the Apostle Paul, is wrestling through the unbelief of his friends and family. And he makes some discoveries, I believe, in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that I think will encourage our hearts. And so we're going to go through that a little bit. But in order to, for me to explain it to you, I have to tell you my story and my mother's story, if that's okay. So I was uh, born and raised in the Holy Land, uh, New York. Actually, I was born in the Holy of Holies, Brooklyn. <laughs> my parents, both Jewish. My mom from a more religious, orthodox Jewish family. My father a little bit more secular, kind of a mixed marriage. And so I was raised more orthodox since my father didn't care. <laughs> and so a lot of you know, have, how many of you have ever been to a bar mitzvah? Okay. Wow. Okay. Did you give... Did you give the 13-year-old uh, boy a fountain pen or what? Some of you. Traditional gift. So I went to the, probably one of the most orthodox Jewish synagogues and training for my bar mitzvah. So I learned I could read Hebrew like that when I was nine years old. I didn't know what I was reading, but I could read it. And so I was taught Judaism in a very traditional way. Our family celebrated all of the holidays, Passover, uh, Hanukkah, you know, especially the food holidays. We celebrated those uh, a lot. And so we, and you know what the one non-food holiday is? That's the Day of Atonement. Okay. Actually, a lot of Jewish people celebrate that too. And our family did. In fact, I used to go to synagogue with my dad on every Yom Kippur. 
And that was, if he didn't celebrate any of them, he celebrated that one because it was so important. And so I was raised in a very, very uh, Jewish uh, culture and family. And of course, there's no talk about Je Jesus was a non-existent subject. We weren't even opposed to Jesus because we didn't think about Jesus. So we had no energy for opposition. And so uh, I graduated from uh, high school and then uh, went to college. I was only 17 years old. And uh, I was, had started an uh, independent little business uh, while I was uh, still in high school. And I actually studied uh, to do better at that business in college. So I majored in uh, unregistered pharmacy. <laughs> and then I minored in marketing. Why is it that every Calvary Chapel gets that joke? Where have you been? So I lasted in, in, in college for about uh, a couple months, which was long. And then my good friend Ephraim Goldstein, Scandinavian guy, <laughs> Ephraim and I went out to the only place in the, in the country where you could get, find the answers to life. And of course, that was Philadelphia. No, no. We went, to, we went to San Francisco. No flowers in our long, long hair, uh, but we we built a houseboat in Sausalito, California, and I retired at the age of 18. <laughs> and we borrowed everything, electricity, water, you name it. We would have paid it back, they didn't ask. And so uh, I continued in my illustrious career um, until uh, a couple things happened. Um, one was 10 guys uh, came and stole our drugs and you haven't lived till you've had the cold metal of a shotgun pressed against your neck, asking you, where's the rest of the drugs? And you don't know. <laughs> For some reason, he didn't believe me. Anyway, the good news is I didn't get killed. But it was sobering, and so uh, my, my career began unwinding. And about that time, one of my other friends, a young woman who dropped out of college with us, too, got picked up hitchhiking from Northern California to Southern Oregon by two brand new, on fire, untrained, Gentile Christian bikers. <laughs> Only they were driving a car this time. And uh, they were going back to their Christian commune in Oregon and so they got my friend in the car and they said, I mean, they, they had obviously studied Jewish evangelism from chosen people. And they, they got her in the car and they looked at her and said, so honey, are you saved? I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't go that route, just so you know. And of course, typically a Jewish response is, saved from what? So we, we didn't grow up learning the lingo. And so, oh, no, do you believe in Jesus? She said, no, of course not. I'm Jewish. And then, of course, her response was, oh, great. You're Jewish. We love the Jewish people. The Bible's Jewish. All our heroes are Jewish. And about that time, she's trying to jump out of the car. Because she's, she's, she's with the uh, you know, chief anti-Semites of Oregon at that point, in her mind. And so they began sharing the gospel with her. And by the time they got to uh, where they were going in Oregon, she had accepted Jesus either to get them off her back or for some other reason. And 
where, do, where does someone go? Jewish, young, hippie woman. So she moved in with them. And uh, they discipled her to some degrees, as people did get discipled in the Jesus movement, which was kind of questionable. And then she came down to San Francisco, where, by the way, we had ripped down the houseboat. Something We had a run-in with a building inspector who didn't understand our artistic format. And so we moved into San Francisco, and I was sharing an apartment, a three-bedroom apartment with 14 other people. The rent was great. <laughs> and so she came back and found us and began sharing about Jesus with us and told us uh, that we really needed to believe in Jesus. He was coming back soon, and we were going to hell. So very simple message. I thought she was drugged. Uh, but she really kept it up. And then my friend Ephraim went with her to Oregon. They began writing me letters, praying behind my back. Be <laughs> so be before you knew it, before you knew it, I had to go up there and straighten them out because I was raised more religious, right? They were conservative Jews and Reformed Jews. Didn't know what they were talking about. So I went up there to convince them that they were wrong. And I met, you know, like 30 Jesus freaks and half of them were Jewish. And uh, so I tried to take all of them on, but they love-bombed me. That was an old strategy. I would yell at them, and they would smile at me. I would yell at them, and they would offer me food. It was frustrating. <laughs> and so finally, the old guy who was running the place, who actually was a tugboat captain, and uh, Jews don't, from New York don't meet many tugboat captains, so he was fascinating to me. He says, look, read this book. You know, you see the thick part? That's yours. I said, you're darn right it is. What's it doing in your Bible? <laughs> so I began reading the Old Testament, which, of course, Jews don't use that word because there's no New Testament, but you knew that. So I started reading the Hebrew Scriptures in English, and I loved it. And all my heroes were there, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Isaiah. I, I loved these guys and uh, because I, I, I was into it. I, in fact, I knew what I should believe but didn't. So I was raised with the right things, but I didn't buy it. But I was taught to respect the Old Testament. And so when I began reading it, I took it seriously, but realized I had missed all those parts where all of my heroes had this relationship with God. So it slipped by me. And I kind of compared the relationship with God that the Old Testament heroes had with what my friends had through Jesus, and it seemed awfully close. And so I was hoping that I could have that relationship with God without the Jesus part, because if I had the Jesus part, I'd have to tell my mother, and that was the end of me. I caused her enough trouble. And so I went back down to San Francisco, and I was working for the Marin County Board of Education. They do have one. And I was working for the Marin County Board of Education in their outdoor education department, teaching fifth and sixth grade young people about the Redwood Forest, which I knew nothing about. But I knew more than them. And so one night, I put the kids to bed, went down to the only phone booth in this campground to make a phone call. It was late at night, and uh, there on the ledge where there should have been a phone book. Now, some of you are already confused. I, I understand that. You don't know what a phone booth is, and you definitely don't know what a phone book is. 
So look it up in Wikipedia. Or watch Doctor Who, either one. So there on the ledge was a phone book. No. It was a different kind of book. And I looked at it. It had a funny newspaper covering. And I couldn't tell what it is. I picked it up. It was glowing in the moonlight. A lot of things were glowing in those days. It was really glowing in the moonlight. I began reading through it. And it said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I said, what kind of ridiculous chapters to a book, book is that? And so I kept looking. It had little stick figures in there. But some of the stick figures have long hair. And I, I, and I knew that that was their portrayal of Jesus, because I knew Jesus had long hair like me. And so I, I was comfortable with the long hair Jesus. And so I realized I had a New Testament in my hand. I realized that that day I had actually said, God, if you're real, show me, and show me how to get to you. And there is a New Testament glowing in the moonlight. Now, I don't know what you would do, but I stole it. <laughs> Some of you say, yeah, I would have done the same thing. I read it all in three nights and realized two things. But I, I shook when I read it because I felt like my mother was looking over my shoulder. And, you know, it's contraband for a Jewish person. But it really spoke to my heart. I love this Sermon on the Mount. I thought Jesus was the smartest person I ever met. I really did. I, I thought he was a street-smart New Yorker. No offense. And so I, I really loved it. And then... I kept looking for the Christian part, you know, and the part where he was an anti-Semite, which every Jew knows. But there was no anti-Semitism that I could find. And when it came to the Christian part, he didn't, look, you go back and you read it today and you get back to me. I didn't see one time where he celebrated Christmas. Read it. He never celebrated Easter. What kind of Christian was he? And he celebrated Hanukkah. He celebrated Passover. He celebrated tabernacles. I came to the brilliant conclusion, which nobody had known before. He was Jewish. <laughs> Jesus was Jewish. So I felt at home. And so I realized my fight was not with this, you know, medieval Catholic pope who hated Jews. You know, that would have been an easier fight. My fight was with a very Jewish guy who seemed very down to earth, just happened to be the Messiah, or at least claimed to be. And then I realized, after reading through what he said and what he did, I said to myself, if, if he's not God in the flesh, it's impossible. Now, I wasn't supposed to believe that, but I did. And so I gave my heart to the Lord, and he began transforming my life and and. My friends all became believers, and uh, we, we held down the Jewish wing of the Jesus movement. Calvary Chapel was baptizing people in the ocean. Jewish people would have thought that was too cold, so we'd be, we didn't do that. No, we were in San Francisco. Nobody gets baptized in the ocean. And so I, I grew in my faith. And then, of course, I realized that, you know, time had come now to tell my mom the good news. And so... I went back, my parents were living in New Jersey, and uh, so I went back uh, to tell them the good news, and uh, I was already a believer three or four months, so I was, you know, I knew what to do. And I had already enrolled in Bible college and was actually moving back to New Jersey uh, to go to this Bible college. 
And uh, I thought for sure my parents would either, I thought they would be a little more open, honestly, than they were. And so I knock on the door. My mother says, come on in, hugs and kisses. I, she says, you're skinny, eat something. You know, we're sitting down. And my father comes down, and she says, so how long are you going to be here for? I said, I'm moving home. She said, oh, that's wonderful. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going back to college. Oh, great. You know, Jewish mother's nightmare at college dropout. So I'm going, I'm going back to college. She said, where are you going to go to college? I said, Northeastern Bible College. <laughs> she, she said, what was that again? I said, Northeastern Bible College. <laughs> and she said, what's a Bible college? I said, Mom, that's where they study the Bible. You can major in Bible. Dead pause. My mother looked at me and said, you? <laughs> Gives you an idea. And uh, then, of course, comes the question, so are you going to be a rabbi? I said, well, probably not in the exact same way you would imagine I would be a rabbi. I mean, I was three months in the Lord. I don't know what in the world to say. So I resorted to my Jesus freak training, and I just looked at my mother, I looked at my father, and I said, Mom, Dad, you're both going to hell. <laughs> All right. But, but you don't have to go to hell because Jesus is coming back any moment, and if you believe in him, you'll be saved. It didn't go over. <laughs> and that night, my mother said, before I was getting thrown out of the house. My mother, my mother said, I'll give you one shot. So I broke out Isaiah 53, which my mother never read before, because Jewish people focus on the five books, you know? And so I start reading Isaiah 53, and uh, my mother had given me a list of rules. She said, she said, listen, you can read something to me, but no New Testament, nothing about Christianity, and no crosses. I don't know what she thought I was going to do with a cross. <laughs> so I just read that to her, and uh, she kind of went into a stupor, almost was falling asleep, and said, I told you not to read the New Testament to me. I said, Mom, that's not the New Testament. That's one of our guys. And she, she, she said, I don't care who it was. It sounds like Christianity. I told you not to read that. You had your chance. That's it. Now, my mom was pretty tough, and so... Year after year after year, she held to her guns. No matter what I would do, she would not let me have a shot at it. I was a good missionary, and, uh, and so, you know, I left tracks in her bathroom and things like that. And <laughs> you've never done that? It's a great strategy. And, and so I did stuff like that, and yet, no, ch no chance. Then, unfortunately, one day she called me up to tell me that she had fourth stage colon cancer. Now, at that point, I was already a believer for 35 years. She had not shown any breakdown in letting me speak to her. And I hadn't tried in years. I don't know about you, but you know, if you keep getting rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected, are you going to keep coming back for more rejection? I think if you do that, this, you need counseling. I know we're supposed to make disciples. I know we're supposed to preach the gospel. But isn't there a certain point where you can say, I tried? You can't force it on anybody anyway, right? But I had probably hardened up and lost all hope. 
But once somebody announces, particularly your mother, someone you love dearly, that they have fourth stage cancer, you know the time is short. They could be healed, they could get cured, but in general, you're on alert. And so I was, I was just so shocked, of course, because my mother made that announcement and I dearly loved her. But then I didn't know what to do about the Jesus thing. You know, it's, we have a great hope, don't we? We have a great hope. But we're related and we love people who do not have that hope. And the last time I checked the word of God, it says that there's only one name given among men whereby men can be saved. There's, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. And I take hell literally. And so these are the burdens that some of us have. You know, it's not all joy being a believer. Sometimes it's a little bit of joy and dread all mixed together. Not for us, but for the people we love who don't know the Lord. And so I didn't quite know what to do, so I did what any of you would do. I went to the Word of God. Because it's only in the Word of God that we can find comfort and wisdom, particularly for the hard things. And so, I love Paul. He's my favorite Messianic Jew. He was actually the founder of the first Messianic Jewish movement after Jesus, you know. And with his little apostolic Jewish band that went from place to place. And so, in the book of Romans, I found great comfort and great advice. Now, it not only applied to my mom, and it not only applied to a lot of the Jewish people you're sharing the Lord with, who are what I call long-term holdouts, but it also applies to so many of your relatives and friends that you love dearly and long to see them come to faith. But you've got some resistance out there, don't you? Sometimes it's with parents, sometimes it's with relatives, friends, coworkers, sometimes it's even with children and grandchildren. And so, let's have Paul give us some advice, can we? First of all, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And I realized as I read those words that, number one, Paul had unbelieving Jewish relatives. And so he understood from a heart level, and you know, a lot of people do a lot with Romans 9, 10, and 11. Some people don't do enough with Romans 9, 10, and 11, but some people do a lot with Romans 9, 10, and 11 theologically, where some of the great doctrines of the faith are articulated in Romans 9 through 11, as, throughout, as it is throughout the whole book of Romans. But I, I understand that there are great doctrines, but this is Paul's heart. And what he's telling his readers in Rome, 
is that he had a great desire to see his own people saved. And that day in and day out, he was suffering. He was grieving for their salvation. Do you suffer? Do you grieve for the salvation of your long-term holdouts? I didn't for my mother. And I knew I didn't. Because I had built up spiritual calluses. My heart was not just hardened. My heart was protecting me. I was protecting my heart. I couldn't stand the fact that my family just kept rejecting my talking to them about the Lord, day in and day out, year after year. How long can you take it before you put up a little bit of holy resistance in some ways? But the first step in fulfilling your responsibility, my responsibility to my mother and your responsibility to others, the first step is to ask God to break your heart. And so I have to ask the Lord to remove the calluses, to break my heart, to help me suffer almost on behalf of the unbelief of my mother, to grieve for her spiritually. Paul really nails it in the next verse. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, the Greek word anathema, accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then in verses 4 through uh, 5, he probably finishes what he started saying in Romans 3 about the great advantages that the Jewish people have biblically in their relationship with God. But in, in verses 2 and 3, he's really focusing on his attitude towards his loved ones who are not yet believers. And he says, if it were at all possible for me to go to hell so that one of my loved ones would go to heaven, I would take their place. I would do it. And I have to tell you, I didn't feel that way about my mother or, or most other people. But as I asked God to break down the walls of my own heart, I began feeling that, and there was nothing more important to me than my mother coming to know the Lord. After 30 years of resistance, it wasn't an easy place to get to, and maybe not for you either. But you need to get to that place if God's going to do anything. And so I asked him for my help, for his help. Now what happens when the Lord gives you that broken heart for your loved one? And, and it doesn't come easily. you gotta, you got to ask. What happens next is in chapter 10, verse 1. Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, the Jewish people, is for their salvation. Verse 2, For I testify that they have a, a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Jewish people and Paul's relatives he was a Pharisee. They knew something about God, but their knowledge was not complete because if it was complete, then they would have embraced the Savior. And so my mother was not unreligious. I had one discussion with her where I said, you know, Mom, you're an atheist. She looked at me, she said, I am not. I said, no, really, you're an atheist. She says, how could you say I'm an atheist? I said, well, because... 
you're an atheist. She says, what do you mean? I said, well, do you believe in God? She says, absolutely. I was raised that way. I said, does it make any difference in the way you live? She says, not really. <laughs> not really. I call that a pragmatic atheist. So it was a long journey uh, for my mom. She was raised in a family with a zeal for God, but not in accordance with full knowledge. She had some knowledge, but not the full knowledge. When you have the full knowledge, you know the Messiah, Jesus, as your Savior. And so I began praying. Gosh, that was the hardest one. I, I, I actually couldn't believe that I was praying for my mother's salvation. It was shocking to me. But God had broken my heart, and the natural, spontaneous response to my brokenness was prayer. But I'm going to tell you something I learned in the process. When you don't feel like praying, pray anyway, because when you pray, God breaks your heart. So prayer is the result of a broken heart, but also a broken heart can, be, can begin with prayer. And you need a broken heart, and you need prayer. Because prayer, you know, you've heard it many, many times, prayer changes you more than it changes things. And sometimes prayer, God uses prayer to change you so that you could be his instruments in changing things. When you pray, you begin seeing people for who they really are. You start seeing them through God's eyes. And a lot of you have friends and relatives and Jewish friends who don't need anything from you. They don't need anything. In fact, they're your doctor. I mean, have, could you imagine sending medical missionaries to the Jewish people? Or educational missions? I mean, what do you really have to give to a Jewish person? I feel like my family is far more ethical than a lot of the Christians I know. Honestly. They're good people. They're great family people. So it's very difficult to say, listen, you need to believe in Jesus because you're a sinner and your life is without meaning and you, and you have, I mean, it's really hard to say those things to some people. It's hard to say them to your loved ones. And when I say it, maybe not as blunt as I just said it, but in whatever way God's allowed you to phrase those things. But you've got to make it clear to people that they need the Savior, don't you? How could they, how could they get saved if they don't recognize their sin? And so it was really, really tough with my mom. But God answered prayer in the weirdest way. So one day, my wife and I were going to visit my mom, and she was getting far along the line. And uh, my, my sisters had told me about this home health care person that uh, was helping my mother, and they used the word servant to describe her. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a word that secular people use all the time. And so I couldn't wait to meet this person because she sounded interesting. And when I got to the front door of my sister's house, Dominique greeted us, and I took one look at her, and you know how sometimes people, they don't quite have halos, but you know, you sort of know they're, they've got that Christian glow, and I don't know, it's hard to express it, you know? And, 
and so maybe I was primed for it, but she, you know, she almost knocked me over. And, uh, and so we walk in the house, and you know, I'm dying to ask her, because she was provided by social, service, you know, social services. And finally, I looked at her, and I said, Dominique, is, are you a, she says, absolutely. <laughs> I said, you know what I mean? She says, I am a born-again, on-fire Haitian Baptist. I said, wow. And we didn't do anything to get you. I mean, you, you were just sent. She said, the Lord sent me. She said, and this class, she said, Mitch, this is not my job. It's my ministry. How did that happen? I'm not saying that it's because I prayed, but my praying was part of the process. And other people's prayers. What an odd answer to prayer. Who would have thought about it? I said, do you, do, you, do you speak to my mom about Jesus? And she said, in my own way. <laughs> I wasn't going to mess with that. In my own way. So prayer is important, but prayer comes from a broken heart. Ask God to break your heart. And then pray. You know, you can keep praying as long as you can. Because in chapter 11, one last point, you not only need a broken heart, you not only need to pray, but you need to have hope. Boy, when you don't have hope, you don't do anything. I remember once sitting with my mom after I preached actually at a Calvary Chapel in Old Bridge, New Jersey, Lloyd Pulley's church. And my mom lived nearby, and so I was speaking that night somewhere else, and we never talked about what I did for a living. And, uh, and it was after some of this was happening, and I was with, with my mother, and this was another very strange answer to prayer. But I would have missed it if I had lost all hope. Because, but I was getting more hopeful. The more I prayed, the more hope I was getting. The more people prayed for me. You know, I actually one day believed my mother could get saved when I had given up all hope on that. And uh, my mom said to me, son, I've been meaning to ask you a question over lunch. I said, sure, what is it? She said, why did you feel you had to change your religion in order to have a relationship with God? My mother never even talked in those terms. I said, well, Mom, I, I was stunned. Now, I would have been a little bit more cynical. Maybe I would have made an offhanded remark, like, well, Mom, if anybody should know I'm Jewish, you were there, you know. But I didn't do that. I answered her question seriously, believing that she genuinely asked and that she genuinely wanted an answer. So I said, I didn't change my religion. I'm, I'm still Jewish, and I believe Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So it fits together like hand and glove, Mom. And she looked at me at that point, and she said, eh, that's what I thought you would say. That's enough. Eat your lunch. You know? <laughs> but I had hope. Paul said, I say then, God has, reject, has, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people. And in Romans 11:5, in the same way, like Paul, like Elijah before him, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And my mom could be part of that remnant. And your Jewish friend could be part of that remnant. You never know. So you have to have hope. While there's 
one breath left, you need to have hope. So my mom was almost one breath away. We were visiting at the hospital, and my wife and Dominic, Dominique went to my mom and said, do you believe in God? And my mom, who couldn't really talk, smiled and squeezed my wife's hand. And then my wife asked a question I would never ask, because I didn't want to know the answer. As long as I didn't know the answer, I could keep hopeful. My wife said, Mom, do you believe in Jesus? And my mom squeezed her hand and smiled and nodded. Now, I want you to know I wasn't there. I was diverting my sisters. So I live by faith. I believe my wife. I believe Dominique, but I didn't see him. Do I think my mom will be there? I think so. I really do. I'm glad I never gave up. Don't give up, okay? Hang in there. And if you're where I was, ask God to break your heart. He's perfectly happy to do that. And then you'll have no problem praying and seeing people through his eyes. And then, slowly but surely, your hope for those long-term holdouts will grow, and others will pray for you. And you'll actually believe that God can save people that you thought were perhaps unsavable. Because he loves these people more than you and me, okay?